just contemplate the reality of impermanence and it might feel, I know it has for me often during residential retreats, somehow that many lifetimes have passed or to even conceive of who I was that first night. It's really one of the advantages of a longer retreat, nine days or more, where there are really so many different retreats that happen, you know, this four-hour period, that day, that hour. So I appreciate all the questions that people left. I thought they were really, in general, really a great collection of questions. I probably won't get to all of them. I'll try to have short answers so I can cover a lot. And I'm sure you realize not only will the answers or my comments not be sufficient, but often I won't even be answering your question. I'll be answering my question. <laughs> I don't know. I think it might have been Joseph Goldstein talking about this. He says, yeah, you just... Or maybe he was referring to his teacher, who, one of his teachers, who would just answer the question that he wanted to answer regardless of the question you asked. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I'll start off with some general questions that came in. During the time of the Buddha, were there cultural differences that might have influenced how we thought? If so, do we need to take them into consideration? For example, was the culture more devotional, uh, fearful, greedy, etc., than the predominant Western culture? Do we need to take them into consideration in terms of our practice, this person asks? Absolutely. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, one of the central teachings of the Buddha is that everything is conditional. Nothing arises in isolation. So the Buddhist teachings were, were a conditional arising, coming out of that mind embedded in that culture at that time. And it's good for us to remember that because the Dharma we're following, the path we're following is an internal path. We have some imperfect, pointing out instructions from the Buddha, from our teachers, but we have to find our own way, which means we have to have this, we have to uncover this barometer, squeeze in the heart, release of the heart, you know, suffering in the end of suffering, that's more than anything our guide, and it will be imperfect because now we're quite distracted most of the time. So it takes, you know, we have to realize we're going to flounder a lot in practice. As another teacher of mine said, you know, so much of the path of practice is realizing the path of practice. Not completing the path of practice, just getting a real sense of what the path is. Reading the Buddha Suttas, suggestions as where to start, differences between Theravada, Tibetan, Zen, etc. Should this matter to me? <laughs> <laughs> There's a great story, I'm sure many of you have heard it because it gets repeated quite often, but when Sharon Salzberg was quite young, 
might have been like 1969 or so, or 1970. I think she was a sophomore at SUNY, State University of New York at Buffalo. And uh, she had started college young, so she might have not even been 18 at that time. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was doing a tour of college campuses. He's a very controversial and well-known Tibetan teacher, one of the first um, teachers, or Tibetan teachers to come here to the States. He had been in Britain for a while already. And he started, he's the one who started Naropa University in Boulder and the Shambhala Centers, or the continuation of his teachings. Pema Chodron is one of his students. And uh, so Trumpa Rinpoche was there, and he wasn't going to give a talk. He was just going to answer questions. And sure enough, I think, as the story goes, Sharon's question was the first question. And she said, I'm taking next year off. I'm going to go to India and learn to meditate. Who should I study with? And he had this wonderful answer. He says, said, in situations, this is a paraphrase, in situations such as these, it's best to leave it to the pretense of chance. <laughs> and there's some real truth to that in terms of what we study, where we study. I mean, it's, it's appropriate to look around, listen, check things out, check out different Dharma centers, different approaches, different Buddhist lineages. But we're going to end up telling ourselves a story about why we're doing what we're going to do, right? And so there's good to weave in that sort of more rational checking out, see what feels like a good fit, see what's convenient, see what seems trustworthy, people walking their talk. And then, uh, but have always in the background of the mind, it will be interesting how I walk this path, where I end up, what I end up doing, who I end up listening to. There are a lot of differences uh, precisely because of that first question. You know, culturally, the teachings arose in a cultural context. And so they have the strengths and weaknesses, I guess we could say, of that cultural context. And then once teachings get set in motion, they tend to be protected, right? Most religious spiritual systems are conservative in that way of like, let's not dilute these teachings. So if they rose in Tibet and had the cultural influences, that particular spin on what the Buddha was talking about, then they'll have those strengths and weaknesses. Same with early Buddhism that we follow at common ground, really trying to connect with this voice of this person, the Buddha, Feel free to connect with me more specifically about ideas of where to start. Yes, the talks were recorded and they'll be on Dharma Seed at some point, including this Q&A session. Then there are a bunch of questions about practice. In his walking meditation instructions, why does Ajahn, I'm sorry, Saida Utejaniya say, quote, Please don't walk extremely slowly, unquote. <laughs> I'm guessing it irritated him when people walk slowly. <laughs> and there is a cultural context here because Saida uh, Utejaniya, he grew up with his teacher, Sue Min, 
Sayadaw, very famous teacher, Burmese monk, who was one of Mahasi Sayadaw's right-hand people. And so this whole, one of the big movements in Burma was this Mahasi style of practice that has been also very influential in the West here. Wynne and I have both studied quite a bit in that tradition. And, uh, and so naturally these systems uh, get a little weird, including the Mahasi, because there came into it a kind of striving energy, especially when Westerners got involved. <laughs> and, uh, and so always trying to do it better. So there was always this part of the practice about being very precise and opening to more and more objects of experience when there's more samadhi, more momentum, you can see more and more. And so a lot of times people would slow down in order to catch more objects of experience, to be less distracted by moving quickly, right? You can sort of be more attentive. But it can get a little cultish too. So when Saidu Tejaniya, he's a different generation, right? He's much younger than that first group of Mahasi Saida and his first group of, of um, early followers who then also became like Suayu Men, famous teachers. He's much younger. And so um, partly because of the influence of his teacher, but par- partly just who he is, and he's sort of a restless person, he found his own way. And he taught from that. And it was in part a correction of what had grown up later and decades after Mahasi taught in the Mahasi system of this real slow, um, precise noting of experience. And so a lot of what you see in those books that we left out, you have to understand the cultural context. Nobody's encouraging people to be lazy or to move in a, a mindless way, but a lot of that kind of tone you'll get is be careful trying to act mindful, you know, moving slowly as a way of acting mindful, or what turns out to be probably even a bigger problem, it's more convenient for distraction when you're moving slow, right? There's less movement to distract your distractions. You can be better at distraction when you're moving slow. It's just like when you're sitting really still, it can really support the continuity of mindfulness and it can really support a good fantasy. Because <laughs> you're not being bothered by flies or body pain, you're just like right there in the distraction. So, you know, these forms, these outer forms are just outer forms. I practice um, at a monastery in Thailand, a six-week retreat, and um, at Ajahn Mahabua's monastery, he's a very well-known Thai meditation monk. And uh, there, the monks and lay people and nuns were encouraged to move at a normal, if not fast pace. Everyone was just zipping around, but they were very <laughs> mindful, right? It wasn't sloppy at all. So, but a totally different vibe than like a Mahasi place. Sometimes I'm at, sometimes as I'm meditating, I get a song in my head. I make a note of it, and I continue my meditation. It stays there sometimes for the whole set. Is there anything that should be done about ear, earworms, or should I 
let them stay there until they disappear. It depends, of course. If it's a good song, <laughs> you might want to hum some for us, especially those of us who are bored in our sit. Pass it along. Um, yeah, if we just notice that part of the mind that can be obviously or subtly averse to quiet and space and silence, and the mind is pretty good, the conditioned mind is pretty good at filling space up with one kind of activity or another, and songs are just one way the mind can fill up space. And uh, as you probably learned, you know, you can't really stop the song or... And that's a place to learn about anatta, the impersonal nature. The mind has its own, the conditioned mind, the habit-based mind has its own conditioning. And that conditioning, to a very large degree, is just going to express itself, causes the conditions, find a way to manifest, to express themselves. And so you may not know the intricacies of how this song has come to be, why this song at this volume, at this time, right? But you will know, you can know that it's lawful, it's not a mistake, that it's happening. And you can be interested about, in real time, in the present moment, what way of being or relating might be feeding, what way of relating or being with it might be weakening this tendency of the mind to fill up space. And, you know, the bottom line is if it isn't one thing, it's going to be another anyway. So who knows that what replaces the song repeating in the mind is going to be more conducive to whatever you're interested in than the song. And that's really a sign of the maturing of practice. It's just another thing to work with, whether it's knee pain or a song or boredom or nothing seems to be happening or a lot of heart, emotional energy, poignant energy. It's always going to be one thing or another. And it really helps, that attitude really helps not thinking of it's about getting to the end of stuff happening, as opposed to getting interested about how to be free with what is happening, like the song playing in the mind. Okay, what, I wonder what freedom would look like when it's like this. That's kind of the interesting question to ask. Otherwise, we end up becoming samadhi junkies where we wrongly assess our practice by how much calm or how much quiet there is. Agitation's bad, calm is good. And it's true on a, just on a really gross level. There's some truth to that. But really what's true is learning is good, wasting our time, not learning. That's not helpful if you're going to evaluate. I appreciated the practice instruction instructions, especially the ones on body awareness. Easeful, ease, light effort. I'm curious about exploring this more. Are there any teachers in the States or Asia that teach in this way, maybe characterized as feminine? Not necessarily a female teacher, but teaching a feminine uh, teaching feminine aspects of practice such as ease, body, awareness, heart, devotion. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, I think it's important to, um, yeah, just always be on the lookout for dualities in the mind. And there are, you know, there are different qualities that are brought into balance that we need to be aware of and bring into balance in practice, you know, like receptive energies and assertive energies, really good to get familiar with energizing and assertive qualities, wholesome qualities, and receptive and calming, wholesome qualities of mind, just always having a sense of where that is. And then in terms of seeking out teachings and teachers and practice situations, if you if you have a sense that I need support learning about the more calming, receptive qualities, skillful qualities, then that can, you know, help guide you. Or I need to learn about how to uh, be more fearless, more assertive, more um, like interested, more inquiry, then that can help in terms of how you seek out learning opportunities. But uh, I don't know any good teacher that teaches in a disembodied way. You know, like if we're attracted to embodiment, that might be you're looking for a good teacher because I, all teachers, good teachers rather, you know, they may not use the word embodiment, but in terms of Buddhism or just, you know, the awakening process, there's no awakening without embodiment, but it's not a conceptual thing, a disembodied thing. It's really being intimate. And there's really no intimate without heart energy either. Because it's, I mean, what, what I call love, I mean, maybe people have different definitions of love, but love is that quality of the mind, of the heart, that knows how to include. Right? It's not dividing up, it's saying, you belong. Yes, this too. And so, I'm not saying that all teachers are good or that teachers don't have strengths and weaknesses. But it's really, I think the question, I'm guessing the question you're asking is, who are the good teachers? <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, everybody's compromised. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one of my early teachers way back in the 80s saying, it's more about the student than the teacher. You know, a really good student can thrive with a so-so teacher. A really bad student isn't going to thrive even with the Buddha herself, right? So it's more about like who's around, who are you willing to practice with, who can you put up with, <laughs> really. <laughs> And digging in and getting started. And then in doing that, you might run into some other people and then find your way. And in this style of practice, we're not making, it's not a long-term commitment. I mean, it might end up being a long-term relationship, but it's really okay to have multiple teachers and to really use a teacher, have a, a you know really impactful relationship, and then not see that person after a while, you know, because whatever you had to do together, whatever learning, and that not 
staying engaged might be end up being a mistake or it might be just the right thing. You know, you may not know. But we don't get a like perfect blueprint that we can sort of follow. We're just finding our way. And the, the nice thing about that is is you can't break it because whatever wrong turns we think we might have made, the only relevant thing now is what do we do with now? What are we going to do now? Can you describe what it feels like in the body, heart, mind when an experienced yogi has a good set? <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm going to say? Leave me your email and I'll let you know. <laughs> well, the, the neat thing is we really, all of us, know pretty well what a bad sit is, right? Anybody not have a pretty good sense of what a bad sit is? It's not that. <laughs> right? Where, where uh, you know, the mind is sort of chasing its own tail and the embodied effect is that energetic entanglement, contraction, freezing out, overheating, not feeling like we belong in our skin in the moment, right? So we usually talk about good sits in two ways. One, whether there was, is or was calm, and two, whether there was learning. And like I said a few moments ago, we tend to overvalue the calm and undervalue the learning. Because we can have a very unpleasant and even agitated sit, but the mind could have seen a lot of stuff that it hadn't seen before. So those are good sits. Not pleasant, but really good sits. The mind learns some stuff. You might have had, generally speaking, a really challenging nine days. But you might go home and realize that it was priceless, that the shifts you're noticing in how you are, how you're navigating your life, really grateful for. Why isn't there more focus on developing concentration in Vipassana? Seems like it would be useful. Absolutely it would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> which is why Wynne and I talked a lot about embodiment and using the primary object the anchor, the breath, the whole body hearing because it's with those like befriending those ongoing experiences of the whole body whatever posture whatever activity feeling the breath in the body aware of the hearing as it happens that ocean of hearing not being like, I've got to catch each particular sound, but just resting back in the awareness that hearing is being known. The reason we encourage, strongly encourage uh, ourselves and all of you to befriend these anchors is because with practice, the mind learns how to unify, to gather with these experiences, to just be with the body, to just be with the breath in the body, to just be with hearing. And when it gathers in that way, then temporarily at least, it abandons distraction. You know, it's not being pushed around by the hindrances of greed and aversion and restlessness and dullness and doubt. 
because it's in that unified place and the receptive, calming, tranquilizing qualities are in balance with the activating, assertive, energizing qualities and the mind feels whole. There's no awakening without concentration and there's uh, you need wisdom to, de- to deepen or strengthen concentration. We have to sort of See, well, what's in the way of being with the breath? What's in the way of being intimate with the body? What's in the way of being intimate with hearing? We have to be curious about, why is that so incredibly hard? It is so hard to just find a way to unify the mind. Now, partly these kind of questions come because some people, you know, who knows, but maybe they've done a lot of practice in previous lifetimes. Who knows? I don't. But they're really good at unifying the mind, relatively speaking. And you know what those people like to do? They like to do samadhi practice. Right? So then we make, you know, regular folks, we make the wrong conclusion. That person's really good at samadhi, and they do samadhi practice. It's kind of, I make this joke a lot to win and others about yoga. People who are really into yoga are people who are good at yoga. They're flexible people. Right? I was like one of the rare people. I did a lot of yoga in the 80s and 90s. I taught yoga a lot, even advanced classes of yoga, but I was always, ask when, and am a stiff person. But I felt kind of like speaking truth to power. (laughs) Yes, I'm an oppressed individual. (laughs) Us stiff people need to stick together. (laughs) But it's, it's really true with like the kinds of practices you're attracted to. We tend to go towards practices that come easily to us. So if you're really nimble in an intellectual way, you do a lot of study. And then when someone's impressed by your nimbleness, your intellectual nimbleness, they correlate, oh, this person does a lot of study and they're really intellectually nimble. If I do that, I'll be intellectually nimble. But maybe they did a lot of study because they were intellectually nimble. (laughs) So this is the thing, just to be a little bit careful. Because... What we're interested in, we're all, we all should be interested in samadhi, and we have to figure out how this mind at this time can gather, and how we're feeding dissipations, superficiality, agitation, and basically to stop doing that, to stop feeding things that are not supportive of being calm. We need to start valuing calm. Not the fake kind of calm, the disconnected kind of calm, but a very embodied, earthy, settledness. Because, like the Buddha says, when there's samadhi, the mind slopes to nibbana. In the same way that the Ganges River slopes to the ocean, it can't be stopped. When you're embodied in that unified way, in the moment, unafraid, open, soft, alert and yielding, you're going to see what you haven't seen before. Insight will happen. It's a natural process. 
It just needs the supporting causes, and the primary supporting cause is samadhi. In vipassana, you, the question may be coming from this actual difference, which is in wisdom practice, samadhi is developed with the continuity of mindful awareness. But it's more of an open attention or an inclusive awareness. Any object really ultimately will do fine. In terms of stringing together the continuity of present moment awareness, we don't need an exclusive meditation object. So a lot of people are really wondering, should I do an exclusive meditation practice where I have a singular meditation object that I keep returning to and basically in that style of practice everything else would be off off limits. We do a little of this in the loving kindness practice. There's there's some flexibility, but basically you're only allowing yourself to keep metta in mind. How you do that, there may be some creativity too. But that's all we're trying to do is keep loving kindness in mind. Keep it in mind, keep it in heart, keep it right here, keep feeling it, keep feeling it, keep feeling it. So that would be an exclusive meditation object and it can be used to develop that samadhi that arises with an exclusive or singular meditation object. And it's really cool to practice that. And it's really cool to practice that even if you're somebody who's not good at it. right? And there are retreats that um, are just focused on that style of practice or you could come on this kind of a retreat and then let, you know, win or me know or whoever's teaching the Common Ground Retreat, hey, I'd like to just do a concentration practice for the retreat. And then in our instructions with you, mostly one-on-one, but also group instructions, we'll give you instructions, we'll support you in that practice. It's really good to do. Do I need to remember and review insights? It seems to me that they make a lasting impression on the mind, and that's enough. Yeah, that sounds right. Because insights aren't conceptual. It's a seismic shift in how the mind understands. So conceptually, the way I talk about it is the mind, the practice, we're collecting data, and the more mindful the mind is, the more good the data is. And when there's enough good data, it challenges pre-existing views, ways that the mind frames, understands experience. And so when the data, good data, challenging data has been gathered over years or whatever, then at some point when that last bit of data has been gathered, there will be an unexpected and sudden shift in understanding because the previous understanding the mind could no longer tolerate given all the data, right? So the mind, this deeper level of the conditioned mind, it does something radical because generally the conditioned mind is always protecting its ideas about things because it takes that personally so it feels like a personal threat when those deeply held views, beliefs, understandings are challenged. So we defend, we defend, we defend, unconsciously or naturally, until it can't be defended, 
And then there's this both scary and exhilarating and surprising thing. And sometimes it's just a little shift and sometimes it's a life-altering shift that happens, right? And sometimes the little shifts are so subtle and gradual that we don't notice how much insight has been developed until something happens and we realize this is not the old Mark anymore. I don't know who you are, but I like you. <laughs> you seem to be handling things so much better than that other guy. <laughs> yeah, it, we're going to review our insights, but don't confuse reviewing our insights with the insight. It's not necessarily totally neurotic, but it can be, and it can lead to this imbalance where we get a little obsessive about our interpretation of the insight and, and want to talk to people about it. And then you end up being a Dharma teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's a joke. <laughs> okay, now we're moving into questions about the thinking mind and difficulties. And they're not synonymous. Sometimes thoughts are useful thoughts. Mark, you said thinking about suffering is worse than only suffering. Is this true, really? <laughs> I understand what you're saying, but there's a part of me that doubts this. If I lose my arm, I will suffer, say it is spontaneous, even if there may be silver linings. Are you talking about the second arrow? Well, I don't really remember saying that, but um, I think what I might have meant, saying something like that, that if we're suffering, then thinking about that we're suffering is probably more suffering, right? So, and that's, that, then the person's correct, and that would be the basic idea in the Buddha's teaching on the second arrow, or sometimes translated as the second dart, you know, where not knowing what to do with the difficulty in life, we stick ourselves with a second arrow, right? We think about it, we complain about it, we act in a way that it itself is a cause for more suffering. So we layer one layer of suffering on top of another. So the alternative, of course, is basically um, based on what we've learned, you know, and if we don't know, we can ask. I wonder what helps. I'm suffering, so let's say we don't have a clue. But even that curiosity is a huge step in the right direction. Because one, we've honestly recognized I'm a suffering being. That's a huge step, because we're not in denial, right? And then, we actually have some, however feeble, confidence that there might be something to do about it. Meaning, the cause for the suffering is an external. I'm at least open to the possibility that I'm doing something that I'm not aware of that is somehow feeding the suffering that I'm experiencing. And if I stop doing it, or do something different, then maybe it will diminish. And then we're in the game, right? Then we're a Dharma practitioner because of that curiosity and the absence of helplessness. In response to thoughts or feelings, during open awareness practices, during open awareness practice, 
you suggest labels like this is being known and this is not personal. Yeah, I wouldn't say this is not personal. I wouldn't make it a statement. I would ask, like, is this personal or is it just nature? Um, is this intended to guide us away from my, me, mine thinking and perhaps to increase awareness of no self? How else do we come on, come to an understanding of no self or non-self, as I prefer, or impersonal nature? Yeah, basically whatever works. And remember, we're swimming in the reality of impersonal nature. It's not that we're a self and we got to get used to being a not-self or that things are personal but we're learning how to live with things being impersonal. Things have always been nature, a movement of nature. The activity, internal activity, what we call like our mind or thinking mind or emoting body and mind and external activity has always just been the unfolding of causes and conditions, innumerable, complex causes and conditions. And those, that unwinding, that unfolding, has never referred back to anything. It's just that unfolding, whatever that unfolding is. So that really helps with us deluded beings being interested in the Buddhist teachings on anatta, the not-self or the impersonal nature. Because instead of trying to figure it out, it means I just need to sink in a little bit more. You know, I just need to listen and open and be curious and feel. Because whatever it is that the Buddha is pointing to with teachings on not-self and personal nature, it's 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 right here. It's the very fabric of what I've been living with, living in. And one way to, just a little, I mean, there are many pointing out instructions, but just to have that kind of serene, dispassionate smile when you catch yourself you know, in your self-centered dramas. Noticing self-centered dramas is not the same as being caught in a self-centered drama. And we're already doing that. Is there anybody in the room who hasn't been able to observe their mind caught up in a self-centered drama to some degree? I mean, we're kind of lost in it and kind of aware of it, right? We sort of but that's really like, well, what is that awareness of self-centered drama? And if that's its own drama, like I'm the one who's able to see my self-centered drama, then that also can be noticed. Now, you can get a little trippy, like always, the self always needing to run behind whatever is being known as neurotic in order to claim, I know that that's neurotic. But, see, even that wisdom steps back for, from and says, oh yeah, that's just, I'm really getting that, how pervasive and silly that habit is. That's back what I was saying a few minutes ago about how whatever the established view is, part of that view is self-protection, right? So self-view is very well defended. Even though it's impersonal, it has a very, a very marvelous 
coherent protection system. It's really, it's like uh, whenever you dig into any aspect of nature, the intricacy, the wisdom, intelligence in nature is really, truly astounding. And it's the same way with how a view protects itself until it can't, and then it's totally, okay, throwing it under the bus and creating another view that it feels it can defend. Because selfing is shameless. It isn't about what the sense of self is organizing around. That's what's so cool about tracking present moment awareness through the day. We see that the self is different hour by hour, what we're congealing around, who we are. But we miss that point. You know, how many different selves have we been today? You know, dozens. Very independent, unique selves. The self full of shame, the self who's better than, like all the different conceits that we talked about the other night. Lots of selves. The desperate urge that the fix is outside of me, skillful ways to work with this and and eradicate it. (laughs) Guidance, please. Share, read the the compulsion to fix in ways that are not tenable and have to work on how to work with the impulse that the answer is out there. Well, this is like what I was saying about collecting data. I mean, because trying to convince yourself that the answer is, uh, isn't out there doesn't seem to work. You think the answer is out there? Good, go find it. <laughs> but but let's, let's evaluate success, you know. And then eventually we start getting burnt out. You know, we try to make ourselves happy by organizing our partners and friends and cats and body and and we keep getting frustrated. You know, we never really get there. And then we bump into these teachings that say, you know, it's never going to be out there. You're never going to get to that sweet utopian spot where you feel good or safe unless you start looking inside. The cause of suffering and release is here in the heart and mind, not out there. And that's radical because external circumstances clearly have some effect, right? I mean, we feel the gratification we experience when we get what we want, and we feel the pain that happens when bad stuff happens to us. But it turns out, from my experience, to be true that although external experience has impact, it's relatively superficial. And that, you know, is hard for us to hear. And nobody is telling us we have to look inside. People do that when they're interested in doing that, when they don't have a better option, or they're curious. And then we start to see how the mind is complicit in suffering and how that actually affects the external world when we start learning from studying the mind. And one thing we can do is just sort of gazing at our friends, gazing at ourselves, gazing at the whole world 
everybody's looking for the outside fix, clothes, all the different status items, you know, or being woke, or whatever it is that makes us special. <laughs> Trying to have something that makes us special. And how we can see it and we can just see how much suffering there is in that. Whatever the version is, the more politically correct version, the politically incorrect version of looking outside of ourselves for what's going to make us happy. Please would you say more about conceit of equal to. Also how it manifests, plays out in the relative plane. What's well, really about the fixedness, right? So all the conceits are a fixed view. And that was one of the few teachings that no matter the Buddhist tradition, it's just universal agreement. Fixed views aren't helpful. Doesn't mean Buddhists don't have fixed views. <laughs> but it's particularly ironic when they do, <laughs> given the Buddha's opinions, or the Buddhist teachings rather, about, you know, fixed views are never helpful. So you might have a really, come up with a really wise understanding, like the person's pointing to this equality monastic, we're the same. Politically speaking, you know, that, that we're, as human beings, we have equal, we should have equal rights to justice, to uh, access, to safety, to education, things like that. But getting attached, the mind getting fixed, is suffering. Because the world is infinitely and painfully complex and uh, there's really very little room for idealism or fixed ideas. And generally we beat people up with them, you know, and there's untold suffering, you know, when fixed ideas, you know, fight each other. And the thing is, some ideas seem appropriate to be fixed to. Like, I, you know, I always careful about even saying something like, you know, we should value calm. Because then it's sort of like Marx said that um, speaking loudly is bad, you know. And if you have to speak up, it's because your mind is untrained, you know. <laughs> and you're a bad Buddhist, or something like that. Because it can sound, it, it's so easy when people say something that people want to assign a fixed view to it. And instructions and the teachings are much more like Ajahn Chah said, you know, you're walking a path and sometimes you're veering off to the right, and I say, go left, go left. And sometimes though you're veering off to the left, and I say, go right, go right. So, you know, when we talk about calm, that's when people are attached to agitation and to drama. And when we, you know, ask someone to take on some responsibilities and get involved in the messy world, it's because they've gotten attached to calm.
Oops. Yeah. I seem to notice potential disaster via association, such as I have an arthritic finger and I happen to see it in a flash. This finger is going to be so rheumatic and painful and bent, dot, dot, dot. Oddly enough, I don't appear to have the same associative mind when it comes to the harbinger of good vision, like see the finger flash on an image of the finger all better. You get the idea how to shift this balance. Or when I get back home, I'm going to get a lot of sickness. When I get back home, I'm going to be well. I mean, they're both, they are both fantasy. So how, Mark, to harbor the more positive fantasy at least for a little while before releasing both. Yeah, and I often say that there's elements of the Dharma that's very therapeutic, and I would think what this person is pointing to is that more therapeutic end of the practice. Once we realize what the thinking mind is, it's just a bundle of habits, then it really, there is a place to be creative. Like, well, why not use a different habit, you know, or start a different habit? If my mind is going to be repeating stuff, why repeat how bad I am? It's like gratitude practice, training the mind to bring to mind things that we're grateful for. Or any other ways that we use thinking to weaken bad habits. Like, I didn't get to spend too much time, but when I was reviewing the Buddha's uh, talk on mindfulness of the body last night, you know, the 32 body parts. That's just a bunch of thoughts. But it, it, uh, it's a real counterweight to taking the body personally or thinking of the body as beautiful, right? To realize that, no, it's skin, and then a little bit under that is a bunch of flesh, and then there's bones. You know, and there's fluids, and there's all kinds of stuff, but none of it is actually beautiful. It's just what it is. So I can use that concept or the concept of death and the decomposition of the body. I can use those mental images, mental thoughts as a counterweight to disturb, to weaken fixed view. So it's really, yeah, we want to, we want to realize that whatever we're thinking is arising because of habit, not because it's true. So it's always a question not whether the thought is true, but whether it's useful now. It's really a functional, pragmatic question. Is this kind of thinking helpful? But it's true. No, but that's actually not relevant. It really, it's not relevant. What's relevant is, is it helpful? What is it setting in motion? Because we can use the truth to do what we think is the truth, at least, to do a lot of harm. I'm not, so don't think I'm saying you can tell lies. <laughs> when past emotional trauma creeps up during a sit, what should be done to get to the present? It is simply, is it simply anchoring on the breath or focusing on body sensations? Well, I think we need a, a whole collection of strategies because it really depends like how much 
momentum the practice has in that moment, how strong and disorienting the pain is, how deep the trauma is, how much experience you have with the trauma. Sometimes it can help to turn toward. A lot of times we develop a lot of wisdom by skillfully turning away, knowing that we're turning away, knowing that it's there, but not now, honey, not now. This isn't a good time. I'll find a way to come back and visit, or you'll come back and visit, but not now. Let's go do this. Let's go take the dog for a walk, or play a song, or listen to, sa listen to the crickets, or something like that. So there's really not one way. And again, to really develop in a functional way a handful at least, a couple handful of skillful means. So, because the, the most important idea is not to feel helpless, because that generally leads to doing what we've done before. And it's totally, you know, the different ways that people bury pain that's what worked at that time with the resources the heart and mind had at that time. But that isn't meant to be a forever strategy, right? Like how a child might bury something might be like really amazing, like how the nature of the mind knew how to isolate and bury and forget and move on. But at some point, the resources and stress of keeping that buried don't make sense anymore. And then the mind has to develop other strategies for working with the tangle that wants naturally to disentangle. Unfortunately, these days, more and more people have skill to help guide. And it's not just Buddhist people that have skill. Maybe I'll just, I'll save some of them, the ones about taking the practice home, uh, when and I can cover after the guided sit tomorrow. But uh, maybe I'll end with this uh, question, actually two questions. One was, 10 tips on how to easily simplify one's life at home to ensure meditation, body immersion, time. <laughs> to, yeah, to ensure that there's time probably for meditation and being with the body. And then a related question, I think. If you're to sum up your 38 plus years of practice and teaching the Dharma in a paragraph, what is the learning or message it must include? <laughs> so the fun answer is, don't be afraid. There's not enough time. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a joke. But just sort of the path. It's like a lot of the elements of life that we just have to deal with being an animal, we really turn it into places to develop beautiful qualities of the heart, what we call the paramis. Like food, for example. Can't avoid dealing with food. Can't avoid dealing with sexuality. Can't avoid dealing with body stuff, you know, aging, illness, things like that can't avoid being embedded in culture and media and social responsibilities and the need to feel like we belong 
that we're, you know, respected or can contribute, right? We have these needs and the key is to really see all of what we might consider in the way of practice as a place to develop all of the wholesome qualities that are going to allow the mind to get really stable and see what it needs to see. So, you know, one of the nice things about the stories from the Buddhist tradition, you know, the many, 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 many lifetimes the Buddha lived, you know, who knows whether this is true or not, but, but it's a great story because it means like in all those countless, literally countless lifetimes, he was developing these beautiful qualities of mind. He was specifically not practicing for awakening. He was developing really beautiful qualities like truthfulness, resoluteness, equanimity, kindness, energy, patience, generosity, wisdom, renunciation. Oh, I'm going to miss one. Did I say equanimity yet? Mm-hmm. Oh, can I say it twice? <laughs> <laughs> and one more. <laughs> the Ten Paramis. You can look them up. Sylvia Burstein has a nice book on them. You can track down. Um, yeah, so that's a really great thing. And, you know, relationships in particular, like partners or even with our pets and friends and siblings and parents, it's like there are, there are a lot of levels of our engagement and responsibilities with these people, but put at the top of the list, the real point of this person in my life is to develop the paramis. The real point of having an aging body, a sick body, uh, having sexual feelings and desires is to develop the paramis. The real point of having attraction to success and power and being seen and belonging is to develop the paramis. Like to really frame it all in that way. That's been really helpful in my practice because otherwise a lot what happens in spiritual life and I feel it still strongly in my mind is like I just want to escape. I want a nice sit. I want to go on a nice retreat. I want to be free of responsibility. And you know, even the impulse to start Common Ground, it wasn't about teaching at all. I mean, I'm, I'm not being shy or, I don't know, coy about that. I just, I just wanted to do my practice. I wanted to be left alone to do my practice. And then, of course, the whole thing, you know, causes and conditions grew up around that. And now it's quite complex, my life. And in moments at least, I really appreciate how perfect it is. And in a lot of moments, I seem to think it's not perfect. (laughs) And it should change. And I'm going to change it, you know, and I'm going to make it more perfect. (laughs) I'm going to get that cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior. Yeah. Where I don't have internet access. But you have a puppy. (laughs) No, I figured that one out already. The neighbor has a puppy. (laughs) That was one of my deepest insights. (laughs) 
Yeah, and there are other things, you know, important things like plant trees. <laughs> Never forget the basic teaching from the Buddha, right? He's pointing out the possibility of being peaceful with conditions, right? And that means these conditions, right? We don't need a different moment. So the fruit of practice is the same as the practice, peace with conditions. And the only time that that's relevant is now. Peace with conditions now. And that really keeps it simple. And, and that's been really helpful, one of those things to remember. Yeah, so I'll leave it there. Just take a few moments, let go of the words. Feel the body sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.